listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Kate Souter. Join us every week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what is going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Already a well-known body, the war in Ukraine has propelled the word NATO into households across Australia and the world. But what is it exactly and what bearing does it have on the current conflict and how it plays out? They're the questions we'll be asking in this week's episode. Okay, Keith, let's start with the basics. What is NATO? So NATO means North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. So after World War II, the United States formed a number of treaty organisations. This is a country that was allergic to having any sort of overseas alliances. The first president, George Washington, had warned the new United States not to get entangled in Europe's affairs. And so the Americans went from the end of the 18th century through into the middle of the 20th century without long-term military alliances very much. After World War II, when the United States became the world's superpower, it then decided to encircle the Soviet Union with a series of treaty organisations. The only one that still exists to this day is NATO. So you have CENTO, which was the central treaty organisation. Central was the sort of what we say, South Asia organisation, mm-hmm. which has long since disappeared. And then you also had CETO, which is a Southeast Asia treaty organisation, which has also disappeared. The best way to make sense of NATO is to say that its purpose was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. <laughs> okay. This was uh, from General Ismay. <laughs> and I think that's still a very good description of what NATO was all about. Because the great fear at the end of World War II was that the Americans would go back to being isolationist. Remember, this isolationist trend is the longest continuous trend in American foreign policy. We saw it, of course, under President Trump. Mm. It hasn't gone away. It continues to exist. So the first task was to keep America engaged in European affairs. And then secondly, to keep the Russians out, naturally, the fear was that the Russians having done brilliantly in World War II as the steamroller rolling into Eastern Europe, but then also try to roll into Western Europe. Now, the extent to which they were going to do that by invasion remains to this day a matter of debate. Some think that Stalin was too conservative to try to risk that sort of invasion, but you never know. You know, you, we're, we're looking back with the benefit of hindsight of and access course. to Soviet archives. At the time, the threat of a Soviet invasion was very real. So it was to keep the Russians out. And then thirdly, it was to keep the Germans down. Now, to youngsters like you, you only think of Germany as this nice, lovely little country mm. or big country that makes excellent products and and all the, and plays good soccer. But in fact, in the longer run of history, from 1870 onwards, Germany was seen as a very aggressive country. So it was freshly united in 1870, made out of depends on how you do your calculations, some have said as many as 300 principalities, all freshly united in 1870. It then went into a war with France. It had the second round of that war in 1914, which was World War I. It lost that war, but then came back for a return match under Hitler in 1939. And so in 19... 
45 onwards, there was this suspicion, you just can't trust the Germans. They're always going to keep trying to get back to where they were in 1870. And so the third purpose of NATO was to provide an opportunity for Western countries to occupy West Germany and for the Soviets to do us a favour by occupying East Germany. Britain, France and the United States all maintained bases in West Germany and to this day those bases are still there. And the same with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union withdrew their bases at the end of the Cold War and that's all part of this dispute about the lead-up to the war in Ukraine. But it was certainly designed to reinvent Germany. Of course, now Germany has been totally reinvented. There are still some signs of Nazi loyalties, etc. But one would never regard Germany as a major aggressive country. It has been reinvented. It's a flourishing democracy. And so its reinvention after 1945 has been a a great success story. And in terms of NATO, you mentioned the US kind of benefits for the US. How does it benefit other member countries? Well, because it gives them this idea of collective security. If you go back to 1914, the outbreak of World War I, Britain got involved in defending Belgium because it said it had a treaty obligation going back 99 years. And so countries fell automatically into World War I. The phrase is they slept, walked into that war. Mm. So it meant, therefore, that countries were very hesitant going forward about giving sort of blank checks, saying we will always defend others. But this notion of collective security emerged during the uh, 20s and 30s and then again after World War II. This idea that a group of countries will come together and will deter attacks by saying if you attack one, it's as good as an attack on the rest of us. There's no automatic implementation of any reprisals to be undertaken by NATO. It's worth emphasising that. Mm. No country is going to give any other country a blank cheque. Yeah. So in 1949, 12 countries then came together. They included the US, the UK, Canada and France, and then a host of smaller countries who all felt very threatened by the Soviet Union. As I say, there's still a continuing debate about how much of a threat the Soviet Union was at that time. Uh, remember, it had suffered terribly in World War II. Mm. It's worth remembering that you can write a history of World War II on the Western Front between June of 1941, which is the end of Britain's finest hour, which runs from May 1940 through until June of 41. So you, you start the countdown in June 41, and you go through until June of 44, which is the Allied invasion of Europe called D-Day. So it's three years. And the bulk of the fighting on the Western Front was done by the Soviet Union. And that's really what Hitler had intended anyway. He really had no major quarrel with the British. His, mm. his problem was moving east to get living space, Lebensraum, and obviously getting rid of the Soviet Union. It is interesting, therefore, that we see that NATO was formed by countries who may or may not have had a, a real fear of a Soviet invasion or whether the Soviets were just too broke, too destroyed ever to mount it. But they erred on the side of caution and they created this military alliance, which now holds the record, I think, for being one of the oldest collective security arrangements in the world. Britain has a, a treaty relationship with Portugal that goes back, I think, 400 years. Oh, that's impressive. <laughs> that's, that's the record holder, I think. But generally speaking, the idea of getting a group of countries to all get together and stay together, mm. that's a real achievement. As I say, CETA and CENTA have, have disappeared. Yeah. They're just for the history books. But NATO continues to roll along. 
And my understanding there are 30 countries currently members of NATO? Yeah, so we get the end of the Cold War, Mm. that era of 1989 to 1991, and the world is transformed. So for those of us who grew up in that period, this was a turning point. And it really looked as a, well, to use George Bush's phrase, a whole new world order Mm. had been created. And then there were questions being asked about, do we really need NATO? Because the Soviet Union had collapsed, the Soviet Empire, which was in Eastern Europe, had collapsed, the Warsaw Treaty, which was the equivalent of NATO, had disappeared. Mm. Do we still need NATO? And there was a feeling that, in fact, NATO was a dying organisation. It was a hangover, a legacy of a previous era. Mm. Nonetheless, Eastern European countries, having escaped Soviet control, said they then wanted to join NATO. So NATO continued to expand. That was in 1997. And again, there is this dispute amongst the historians as to exactly what happened. The argument was, uh, it's an issue that I've raised before, but it's still worth trying to get our head around because it clearly colours Putin's thinking about what the war in Ukraine is all about. Remember, at the end of World War II, it was agreed that the four major allied countries, as they were then, had the opportunity to occupy Germany, East and West. At the end of the Cold War, so we're looking at 1991, the Soviet Union agreed to pull out of East Germany to enable East Germany to become united with West Germany. Remember the British, the French and the Americans still have bases there. Mm. But the Russians said, well, look, we'll pull out. That'll enable the two Germanies to get together. But the quid pro quo is that NATO must not move east. Right. And there is actually in the historical documents a phrase from Secretary of State Baker, who was with George Bush Sr., who said NATO will not move an inch to the east. And George Bush Sr. honoured that promise. The change began in 1997 with the way in which under President Clinton decided to allow in so many East European countries. So the countries that had previously been occupied by the old Soviet Union were now joining NATO. And so NATO's eastern border was moving further and further towards that Russian border. And, of course, from Putin's point of view, this is the reason why he went to war in Ukraine, because there was a fear that Ukraine would join NATO. But certainly the the issue that we had in the late 90s was that the Americans and others had started to violate that informal agreement. Gorbachev's big problem is he never got that promise in writing. Mm-hmm. So it's only by going to the archives and looking at people's <laughs> memoirs, etc., that we see that there was a promise, but he never actually got it built into a treaty. That was Gorbachev's big problem. He put too much faith on an American statement. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and this week we are delving into NATO and its role in the war in Ukraine. Now, let's talk about that a little bit more. So, you just mentioned that it was part of the, you know, Ukraine wanted to join NATO, and it was part of the reason that Russia invaded. Can you talk us through that a little bit better? Yeah, so the argument that Putin and his supporters, and some of them in the West, their argument is, and and i got to say that I was also somewhat in this camp as well, before February 24, is that NATO, by moving east, was feeding into Russian paranoia. If you look at Russia geographically, it's a wide open space through Eastern Europe until you get to Moscow. So in theory, you could walk quite easily. You don't have to go over mountain ranges or Mm. whatever. You can get there. Russia's always been paranoid 
It's not a new thing with Putin or the communists. It goes all the way back into Russian history for centuries. They have worried about a force coming in from the West. They're also worried about their rear end, I might say. Mm. People like Genghis Khan or whatever coming out of Asia. That's yes. another fear they've got. <laughs> the problem for Russia is that it's the largest landmass in the world. Mm. It's vulnerable both in the front end and the rear end. That's the problem. <laughs> so in the, in the front end, as we would call it, being Westerners, the fear for Russia is they need to have a buffer zone. And that's what the East European territories were about. But then Poland, etc., became independent after the end of the Cold War, and those countries were allowed into NATO. And so the NATO border was moving further and further east. At the time, there were people who were warning against that move, partly because it was expanding NATO's potential area of operation so far to the east. You've got all the issues of lines of control, lines of supply. You've also got the fact you're feeding into the Russian paranoia and people who are saying, look, we've got Russian history. Uh, they get very nervous when they have so many foreign forces so close to their territory. But meanwhile, Ukraine, which is undergoing its own transformation, basically Ukraine has got two halves. The eastern end is more dominated by the Russians and the western side more dominated by Europeans. Mm-hmm. And that western side, which contains the national capital, Kiev, that wanted to get linked up to the European Union and to NATO. But there were, as I say, there are people in NATO who are saying, all right, let's not move too quickly on this. Right. It's pushing us too far to the east. It'll be inflammatory for Putin. Putin took back Crimea in 2014. It had been given to Ukraine, we think, in a drunken telephone conversation with the Soviet leader, <laughs> uh, Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev. Wow. So Crimea was then retaken by Putin in 2014. There's continuing debate about whether it was part of a grand strategy. You know, some of us have talked about Putin trying to recreate the Russian Empire in Eastern Europe, or was he simply fearing that the West is getting too close to him and therefore he needs that buffer territory? And so we've seen the war in Crimea, basically the war in Ukraine, going on now for eight years. You know, we talk a lot about February 24, which is when you had the very clear invasion by Russia this year, February 24. But in fact, it's a struggle that's been going on for eight years. Mm. Now, Ukraine might not be part of NATO, but the alliance is helping the country in the invasion. Is that right? That's right. So not as an alliance per se. It's not seen strictly as an alliance operation, although Putin is trying to sell the war to his citizens, Mm. that this is NATO now fighting Russia. It's not just Russia and Ukraine. But clearly, of course, NATO is a key player in this. It's coordinating the movement of equipment, etc. So that that is very important. Mm. I might just say the other development, which is worth bearing in mind, is that Ukraine has been in the queue to join NATO for years. But in fact, ironically, two other countries have leapfrogged that little queue. Right. That's Finland and Sweden. Mm. And they have joined. So this represents for me a major disaster for Putin. That Putin has actually increased the size of NATO. (laughs) Um, Finland has a a long history of fighting Russia. It's also had its own fallings out with Sweden. Both countries have had a policy of neutrality. Sweden boasts about not having been involved in a war, I think, since the time of Napoleon, so we're back 200 years. And they're always seen as, you know, people willing to work for the UN peacekeeping operations 
They supplied the best ever UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld. So the Swedes have this reputation for neutrality. And the Finns, with this huge border, it runs on for over 800 miles. Wow. Huge border with Russia. The Finns have always tried to be neutral between the West, that's NATO countries, and Russia. But Finland has had its own falling out with the Soviet Union. Its last war with the Soviet Union was just the beginning of World War II. So there's been a history of conflict. But Finland keeps itself out of mischief by not becoming too aligned to NATO. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, both countries, with long-standing reasons for remaining neutral, said, we now want to join NATO. And NATO said, yep, we'll take you in. That was express admission. Well, I mean, how come they got in so easily and Ukraine didn't? Again, it's that problem of Ukraine is so close to Russia, although mm. Finland, of course, is as well. They're yeah. breathing, breathing down each other's neck there. <laughs> I think that from NATO's point of view, Finland is seen as a less provocative member mm. of NATO than Ukraine would be. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Sweden and Finland have now been taken into NATO. So one of the long-term disasters of this invasion for Russia is actually to augment the membership of NATO. And, of course, one has to admit that Russia has given NATO a fresh lease of life. Absolutely. Remember, in the early 90s, the talk was that NATO was an old-fashioned alliance. It was going through all sorts of soul-searching about how it could reinvent itself to protect the environment mm. and all sorts of do-gooding stuff. <laughs> uh, but generally, most of us just thought it was a relic of a previous era. And suddenly, now it's front and centre in international politics. And just to wrap us up, I did want to ask for you what the future looks like for NATO and whether you think Ukraine will ever be accepted as a member. I think Ukraine will be accepted eventually now. I mm -hmm. think that we need to get the war out of the way first and we have no idea how the war is going to go. If I were to make a prediction, I'd say that the intensity of the fighting will slow down a bit because winter is coming in. It's very difficult to conduct military operations during winter months. There'll be a lot of mud and rain and snow. It depends a lot on the weather, which is not a new issue. You know, we've been writing about weather and affecting the outcome of battles for centuries. So my guess is that Russia will use the winter period for the mobilization of its 300,000 mm. extra forces and to try to train them and arm them. And of course, from Ukraine's point of view, by retaking parts of eastern Ukraine, where the Russians simply fled and left their equipment, the Russians have actually provided more equipment to Ukraine than NATO has done. Yeah, wow. It's a huge treasure trove yeah. of material. My guess is that NATO, Ukraine will spend its winter months just refreshing the memory of its troops on how to use all this Russian equipment. And then we will see a resumption of hostilities early in the new year. So keep an eye on the months perhaps of March or certainly April and May. Mm. The ground is harder. It's more possible to fight in the open air. The weather is easing up, etc. So that's when we will see the real breakthroughs for either Russia or Ukraine. My money is still with Ukraine. So uh, I think we're still looking eventually to some sort of Ukrainian victory. But the question is, what then happens with inside Russia and the risk of it being defeated? Mm, well, the questions never stop coming, do they? Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Suda, for your time. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.